Jewish Money Matters, episode 244, Danny Levin, author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. What are some of the behind the scenes of a war-torn country, the ugly side of money, hostage negotiations, and more? This is the topic of today's episode. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Today, we take a glimpse at the not-so-pretty side of money, especially in the context of war-torn countries, hostage negotiations, and obtaining proof of life. My guest is Daniel Levin, author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. This thriller is like a movie, except it's not. It's very real. It's Daniel's story as he searches for a Westerner in war-torn Syria. How did Daniel end up in this position, the role of money in hostage negotiations? It's not exactly what we might think. Daniel has been involved in hostage negotiations numerous times in different countries. We discuss the personal toll this work this kind of work takes. Daniel is a lawyer by training with a postdoctorate from Columbia University and has spent the last 25 years working with governments and development institutions worldwide, focusing on economic development and political reform through financial literacy, political inclusion, and constitutional initiatives. As a member of the board of the Liechtenstein Foundation for State Governance, Daniel works in diplomacy and mediation efforts in war zones. Here's Daniel Levin. <laughs> Daniel Levin, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. How are you? It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Yael. It's great to be with you. This is going to be such a juicy conversation. You're the author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. There's so much for us to unpack here, but it's been called a true James Bond story. And although I wish it wasn't a story, it's actually real life. And you were involved in this. Before we dive into the crux of what happened, happened here and what you narrate in the book. I'd love for you to take us a little bit back to even prior to 2014 when this happened, because I, I presume there's a backstory. It's not, you know, not everybody just gets a call one day to help some missing person in the Middle East. So what was going on in your life? Give us some context to help us understand why then this happened. Okay, I'll go a little bit back just to put the story into context and we can go deeper then into my own background, as you wish, of course. I run a foundation in Europe that was started in 2008 by the Prince of Liechtenstein. And the idea of the foundation was essentially it's a non-for-profit foundation with the purpose of helping failed state, essentially working in war zones, kind of areas in civil war, either within the state or in war with other countries. And the very specific purpose of identifying young people in those countries and taking them out of the war zone and preparing them for leadership when the killing stops. And this was really intended originally to work all over the world. I grew up in Africa in the 60s. And so a lot of 
the early work that I had done in the mid-90s was in Africa and then in Central and South America and in Southeast Asia. So it was always working in rebuilding uh, civil war ravaged societies, whether that is in Angola or whether that was in Peru at the end of Sendero Luminoso years or whether that is in Southeast Asia, really all over the place. And so, so the context with the Middle East wasn't really one that the foundation had set out to focus on. Mm-hmm. It all changed in 2011 with the so-called Arab Spring, where you had uh, you had really uprisings throughout the Arab world in North Africa, starting in Tunisia, sweeping through Egypt, then uh, obviously the fall of Gaddafi in Libya, all the way to the Middle East, and all of Israel's neighbors were engulfed in that too, Syria being one of them. And in 2011, 2012, I'd given a series of lectures and wrote some articles about uh, the Arab Spring and how the West had also both failed to recognize that this was coming, this deep discontent on the Arab street, and also uh, that we, that the West didn't really have a plan B of who would you actually interact with? What was the next generation? Because we're now in a globalized world where people who were protesting who were teenagers or in their early 20s had a really much more globalized perspective on life. They weren't looking at themselves in terms of nationality or religion or ethnicity that much, as much as more as they wanted the same thing that kids in Switzerland or in the U.S. or somewhere else would have. And and it took the world really unprepared, both the Arab leaders, but also the world. And so what had happened, Syria was one of those countries where the, this civil war exploded with tremendous violence in 2012. Mm-hmm. And initially in the war, uh, it was not clear that the Assad regime in Syria would emerge victoriously. This is before Russia intervened in 2015, and the Iranians intervened only indirectly through Hezbollah, the Lebanese militia. And uh, so in 2012, we were asked by the various sides to the war there, both the regime and the opposition, this was the secular mm-hmm. opposition, so-called Free Syrian Army, whether we could help mediate in the war. And we said we would help mediate, but under the condition that each side would give us a few young people that we could take out of the country and prepare them for leadership. So that's the context, how we even got involved in in that region. And we did this for about two years, but by early 2014, it was clear the regime was not playing clean anymore. They were undermining uh. this peace process. And so we pulled out. But in the in the meantime, myself and my staff had spent time in Syria And we had a tremendous network really all over the countries. And so we started to get requests from families and Western governments when their young men and some women went missing, either were were taken hostage or imprisoned by the regime or otherwise went missing Mm -hmm. uh, and asked us whether we could help locate them. So that's how this whole hostage negotiation work started in Syria. Now, there's I have a personal background to that, which is I did some of that work when I was in Israeli army way oh. back then in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. So there's there's a personal aspect for that for me. But I'm just answering your question in terms of Syria. So by the time this story unfolds, which is the end of 2014, our foundation was no longer active there, but I was still being asked to help find missing hostages and negotiate their release. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm still involved in that kind of work in the in the region still today. So that's the context. I'm just setting it for you. And 2014 was the most gruesome year of the war. It was the year where, you know, I don't know if you remember, James Foley and Stephen Sotloff and a few journalists were captured and beheaded by ISIS. Uh, Kayla Muller, an American aid worker uh, in early 2015. So it was really the most awful period of the war. And that's exactly the time where I was approached by someone to help find a missing person uh, in, in late 2014. Okay, so this wasn't a, 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 a one-time thing, as you just told us. What, what was special about this one approach for this missing person? Was this a high-profile individual? What, what made it stand out? Actually, uh, the, 
I didn't write the book because this particular case stood out and I don't want to give any spoilers on what happens here, but I actually was going to decline this request. Mm -hmm. I, a person Why? asked me to come meet him in Paris and on what he said was a life and death matter. I didn't know that he that it had anything to do with Syria. Had I known, I would have probably declined that meeting. I had just prior, just two months prior to this request, had a really traumatic experience where I was involved in the hostage negotiation. And just a few weeks before I was supposed to meet the hostage takers, the hostage was executed. Oh, my. And so, yeah, so I really had sworn to myself, to my wife, that I really wouldn't get involved in Syrian hostage situations anymore. It was really awful. Um, it, it, you know, you always feel a little bit responsible if you can't help. And so in, in all those cases, there were several hostage situations some, thank, thank God, were successful, but some were also unsuccessful and hostages were executed or still incarcerated still today. And so uh, I, I was really burnt out as a form of PTSD, really, and I didn't want to get involved in that anymore. But the person asked me to Paris. We went for dinner and then for, went for a walk. And he, it's an older gentleman who just broke down in front of me sobbing and said that this son of a friend had gone missing in Syria. And by then, I felt like I was almost in it already. Really? So wait, is this person who you go meet in Paris a close friend? Like, is, is it a random individual? It's a little more complicated. He's not random. It's someone I knew I'd met two years earlier in Washington. Uh, but he was an, a, an acquaintance of someone who was very, very dear to me, someone mm -hmm. I considered almost a father-like figure, a mentor to me. Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, And so I, the only reason I even went to Paris to meet with him, he sounded really desperate. And because I'd been introduced to him through someone who was very close to me and very dear to me, mm -hmm. I, I took that meaning. So it's, you know, how life always plays is there are no real coincidences, but it, 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 you know. We can't see the strings that tie us all together. No, God definitely has a plan. Okay, so now you're in this situation. You've promised yourself and your wife that this is the end, but this is so moving. This person is definitely um, desperate for his friend's child. Is that what it was? His his dear friend's son. Yes. Um. And and so and so you take this on, but you you said in a you said like I'm I'm almost in it already. <laughs> That's those. I think those were the words that you used. What does what does that mean? What what happens next? Do you do you just think you're going to make a few phone calls and then be out, or like what what exactly is happening? It really depends. There, are, in some cases, you just have to decline because you know you're not going to help. So, in in the worst cases where you know that, let's say ISIS captured a person and he's either in Iraq or near Iraq on the Syrian border, I can't even travel to that area. Mm -hmm. It's just too dangerous. And I know that it's very likely this person is going to be executed. It's very hard for me to help. And I do have to unfortunately decline some cases. But in this particular instance, uh, this was someone who had been kidnapped or had gone missing, I should say. And the name hadn't made the public news, by the way, which is not infrequent. There are currently 14 Westerners, meaning Americans, Canadians or British people who are missing in Syria, whose names have not been made public. So mm -hmm. this is not something this is an ongoing issue. And uh, what I did is it, it, because I felt drawn in because he broke down in front of me, I made one phone call to a very good friend of mine, a, a Saudi citizen who is really quite a wonderful person who has, who has saved a lot of Westerners. And uh, he's the one of my first calls usually to even find out whether he knows anything about this missing person, whether anything can be done. And he was the first phone call I made. And his reaction was, we may be able to get some information on this missing person, uh, but you're going to have to come see me in Istanbul. And if I get the green light, I'm going to send you to Beirut to meet someone uh, who can then put you on the track. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are plenty of times where this Saudi friend, Khalid Al-Mari, where he's also said to me, we're not going to be able to help. 
because either the hostage is dead already or 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 the the group holding him is not going to negotiate or uh sometimes he says that because ransom payments are being negotiated already behind our back so we don't get involved in those cases so there are several instances where i have to tell either the family or the government asking for help that i can't that i'm not willing to do it or i can't do it mm-hmm. in this particular case he said you know come to istanbul i'll i'll we'll take it step by step but i may be able to get you on the path at least getting information on what happened to this person mm-hmm. now the person missing is a westerner correct not american I don't identify the nationality. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned ransom, you mentioned um your relationship with this friend. Uh, let, let's talk about let's talk about the money as they say, you know, want a good story, follow the money, right? So, first of all, wh- who's who's capturing this this person and is there a financial incentive going on here for capturing this 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 guy? I'm assuming it's male. I don't know. He is male. So money thing is a little tricky in hostage situations. First of all, the, the thing that's very hard for us to get our minds around, wrap our minds around is that hostage situations in war zones, hostages are really just a commodity mm-hmm. for the hostage takers. They're part of the war economy. So uh and it is something where we almost don't have the luxury if you want to help in hostage situations, you can't just have the luxury of being you know outraged and 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 thinking of these people just as evil they are evil but it's in order to be able to help you really have to understand their mentality they look at western hostages no different than they look at weapons or drugs or other commodities or diesel or heating oil or little girls that are taken from their villages in Syria and sold into sex slavery into the gulf for them human beings are the same way commodified as as any goods and services or food or blankets or clean water and so whenever a hostage situation is involved there is a money aspect the only exceptions to that and, and, and when i say money i mean value mm-hmm. so for example if the syrian regime takes a westerner hostage it's not that they want to sell him for cash necessarily they want to use him and trade him in exchange for let's say unfreezing bank accounts of the regime or arranging for medical treatment for a family member that they otherwise can't do because a person is blacklisted and can't travel right there's some form but it's still some form of value there's some consideration so i think of it like money that way mm-hmm. the only exceptions uh, i would say money's more indirect their role is in the most extreme islamist parties like the isis cases where they executed hostages really for the shock value for them it was almost like a recruitment tool which of course says everything about those groups right so you you'll take a westerner decapitate him and put that whole video on social media and that's going to be a great recruitment tool for disaffected islamic youth in these in the outskirts of paris or brussels for example so uh though and in those cases very little i can do because they're not they don't want to negotiate a release they it's really right. a death sentence at that moment but most cases the overwhelming part of hostage situations hostages have some form of value monetary or other value and once you figure out what that is and what the hostage taker wants you start a negotiation but you first of all have to figure out and you can't do that before you know who has the hostage and and uh, what the expectations really are Okay so you travel to Beirut you meet your friend you find out this is doable Wh- who has this this person and what 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 happens with you, you don't spoil the story for us but give us a little bit of <laughs> sure. the adventure <laughs> So I so I fly to Istanbul I meet my friend he gets the green light sends me to Beirut where I meet the head of a very violent um Islamic militia 
but I know that I am safe there because I'm under the protection of my friend who sent me. Uh-huh. And I spend the night with him, with the head of that militia. And they direct <laughs> me essentially, they direct me on, yeah, it was really strange because, you know, I was in parts of Beirut where first time I was there was in Israeli army uniform decades earlier. So it, it was really, it's a bit of an out of body experience. And, uh, and I think they, I need they, to sit and talk to your wife. <laughs> Yeah, this, this particular story, she only found out when she read the manuscript. So that was an, that was an interesting dinner conversation. <laughs> I bet. Okay. Um, and so, and so basically they direct me, uh, towards a very violent drug gang, a Syrian drug gang that had cornered the market on an amphetamine called Captagon. It's a drug that is being mass manufactured in Syria now. It's not a new mm-hmm. drug. It first was discovered. It was first uh, manufactured in Germany in the 1960s. Uh, not surprising, by the way, the Germans have sort of a, a special expertise when it comes to amphetamines used in war zones. They, In the Second World War, the Nazis used a, a drug called pervitine, which was an amphetamine that they used to fuel their their own fighters in the Blitzkrieg in Germany, so in Eastern, in Western Europe. So uh, there's this kind of an expertise. This particular drug, Captagon, was initially developed as an amphetamine and also something like ADHD medication. Mm-hmm. It was then pulled out of circulation in the 70s because it led to such toxicity in the blood and in the heart. But it is very easy to manufacture. That's what makes it so dangerous. If you have a high school chemistry kit and a scale and some water, you can make it. And so in oh, Syria, it's being mass manufactured and it's being sold in blister packs to make it look like actual medication. And, and I can tell you, I have a Saudi friend, a doctor, a neurologist who tells me that their estimate is that over 50% of Saudi male youth between 15 and 25 are addicted to Captagon today. So oh, this has really created a... An, an awful nightmare for countries all over the world, not just Syria. So this gang in Syria that was the primary Captagon manufacturer and distributor, which also specialized in selling little girls and in trading in drugs and in weapons and everything, they were the, the group that had captured this young man when he had wandered into Syria in the north, in Ale- moving from the Turkish border towards Aleppo. And they that captured him within minutes of crossing that border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not again, I'm not going to, as you said, I'm not going to give spoilers on what happened, but but I had to essentially trail this gang. I ended up trailing them to Jordan, to Amman, but I missed the gang leader there and had to tra- trail him all the way to Dubai. And then the story you know, I write about how I catch up with him in Dubai through his ex-wife and and how I end up uh, getting the information that I'm looking for. So so the story is really that hunt for this gang leader to get me information in the course of that. Uh, there are two young girls whom whom he had kidnapped from their villages in Syria and sold into slavery in Dubai. The mm-hmm. older one of the two, who was 17 at the time, who just turned 25 on March 1st, actually, uh, and is still in, in my life today because she managed with her younger sister to escape and start a new life in Western Europe. So uh, they helped me. And, and I, in fact, I wrote the book as a promise to them to tell their story, too. So there are really two stories within this book. One is the search for this missing Westerner and then. The other aspect of it, though, is the story of these two young girls uh, who were taken and uh, and managed to get out of this, that world, too. Mm-hmm. OK, so so as you're going through the process, um, going going back to the financial aspects of this thing, I'm assuming. So you said these girls are help you. Um, and 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 you you now find this person, I'm assuming do First of all, who's paying you to do this? Is it the families, the the hostage family, and also paying for 
Maybe you have to pay people along the way. I mean, there, there might, maybe directly or indirectly. Like, how do, how do the financials work from your end in, in, in these cases and, and in this case in particular? So this is a really short answer, which I'll explain a little bit longer. But the short answer, because it's really radical and without exceptions, is there's no financial aspect to it. In other words, no money can change hands when it gets to this. It's a non-for-profit foundation. Uh, I, there's no money that we take from governments, from families, from mediators, from anybody else for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, first of all, once you introduce money into a hostage situation, all the unsavory, disgusting middlemen show up and expect mm. cuts. Mm. Uh, second of all, once you start, as a matter of principle, and it's also my own Israeli background, as a matter of principle, I don't get involved in ransom payments. I feel, I feel like as tragic as it is, every time there's a hostage, once you pay ransom, you guarantee that 10 more people will be taken hostage. Yes. So I don't want to be part of that, which means you shouldn't really get personally too involved with the families involved, you know, because obviously it's very, very hard to say that to a family of their loved ones. So I often try to avoid interacting too directly with the families for that reason, too. But literally no money changes hands, not only no fees, no payments, no expenses, not even a cup of coffee. I don't allow anyone to invite me for a glass of water uh, in that thing. So they're, they're really, it's very, because once I establish that principle, I can say to anyone who demands payment, I have nothing to give you because I'm not receiving anything myself. I'm not receiving, not directly, not indirectly, not through expense reimbursements, not the foundation, nobody is. It's a non-for-profit foundation that was seeded by the prince uh, it is funded on its own and we don't take money from any outside party. And it's much, much easier in that world of hostage taking because now we can move the conversation to something else. So, for example, if I let's say I reach a, host, a group that has taken someone hostage and they say, OK, well, you can't pay us. What else can you give us? Then you start saying, OK, sometimes one of the hostage takers has a grandmother who needs medical treatment but can't travel abroad because the whole family's blacklisted. And then you can arrange for chemotherapy in Cyprus or in Germany for a person. Now that you have these non-monetary wow. kinds of favors you can start to do either directly because you can do it or because through your network, you become like, a, it's like a, a three-party relationship, right? You can do a favor to someone else who can do a favor to the hostage takers. So you start to move into a completely different conversation and removing money from that equation is the only way to really be effective. Once you introduce money, these things don't end well, unless you have someone who's willing to pay tens of millions of dollars in ransom payments. So which brings us to the topic of, I want to say leverage, maybe that's not the right word, but it sounds like, yeah, so it's not financial leverage here, but there is some sort of leverage in terms of the relationships. Um, which also brings us to the fact that not everybody, you know, just because you have a brilliant mind and a law degree, a person doesn't make them qualified to do this type of work. There's there's this, these relationships that in your case, and I'm assuming in most people in your position, you've these relationships that you've built over time that really give you leverage here. That's right. I mean, yeah, you can, leverage is a good word. You can, sometimes I call it chips that you collect and then you cash when you have, you know, the right moment. But you said it correctly. You can't, you have to build it over time. You can't just show up in a war zone, you know, with a blue shirt and blue eyes and think that everyone's going to just be so charmed by you or impressed by you that they're going to give you what you want. It doesn't work that way. That's just for movies. You know, that's Jason Bourne stuff where you fly in somewhere. That's silly. In this particular case, if you're dealing with hostage situations, you really have to have a network of relationships that you can use. So 
let's say there's a situation in Iran, uh, sometimes I will call on relationships that I have had in China for the last 20 years or in Russia for 20 years and say, listen, I know that you know the person who has a direct relationship, business, military, political, whatever it is, with the group responsible for the for the hostage takers, whether that's regime or otherwise, um, let's see what we can do. What is of value to you? And it, it just happened with China. The Chinese intelligence helped solve a situation of an American hostage in a country not that long ago. And in return, I helped them solve the uh, situation of a Chinese citizen who was detained in the West. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it really goes over three three sides and three angles. But what you what you indicate is correct. You can't you have to have established this in advance. I, I often liken it to a surgeon. If you if you do an operation on a person, you have to put the infusion way before the surgery. If yes. you wait for the surgery, then the blood pressure drops and you can't find a vein. So you have to really do that in advance. And those are relationships that have preexisted for years and years. In the case of Syria, it was first of all, you know, the work of the foundation for the for the three years, two and a half years prior to this request. And secondly, I had from my days in the Israeli army, uh, we, our unit had captured a Syrian unit that had wandered across the Golan Heights into Israel by mistake. And we had captured them and I ended up debriefing them. This is over 30 years ago now. And the Syrian officer in charge was about my age. We were in our mid-20s at the time. Uh, he and I ended up staying in touch over the years. I came to the States. Wow. Uh, he studied abroad for a while. He's still an officer in the Syrian army. And he's helped with Western ho- hostages taken huge personal risks himself. He smuggled out even death certificates of hostages who were executed. Uh, and so sometimes it's those kinds of relationships. I've known him now for, you know, 30 years, a little over 30 years now. So um, sometimes the relationships come from all kinds of angles. But if you don't have pre-existing relationships, it's virtually impossible. By the way, not just for someone like me, but even if you're a government official or senior government, you can be a secretary of state traveling to Syria to demand the release of an American. People are going to say nice things to you, but you're not going to accomplish anything. It just doesn't really work that way. It's really the informal relationships behind the scenes. There are certain rules that you have to follow that you can't breach in order to be successful in negotiating these things. And the less official you're working this, the, the more successful. Hmm. You know, as you're as you're telling me that it is sort of. It's sort of, uh, it was refreshing in, in, in a way that like it kind of restores our faith in humanity because there's such a dark side to this work and to the kind of it, characters that you encounter. But then there's just also this goodness that you see in people where they're, like you mentioned, sometimes putting a lot at risk, you, you know, to, to do a favor. It's odd, you know, I, the, I think the longer I'm doing this, the less I believe that I understand how human beings are wired, where mm-hmm. you can have bad people capable of doing good things and good people capable of doing really bad things. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't judge. Even if I've walked in someone else's shoes, I'll try not to judge. Every time I, I do prejudge something, I usually end up making a mistake. Wow. Maybe I'm just not a very good judge of characters, but that's, that's the impression I'm getting here. And along the way, people helped who had only took a personal risk. People who had only things to lose, but they just helped because they had held on to that piece of humanity of themselves and other people who are in a position to help. And by the way, even in in Western governments and Western intelligence agencies who could have easily helped or provided information or given us access to a security briefing, just didn't do it, not because they were evil, they just didn't care. And sometimes 
that's the form of evil that you see is just people don't really care what happens to someone else. And uh, unless they have a personal stake or benefit involved, which brings you back to the money discussion, right? Once you introduce money into that, and the problem with money, money can do tremendous good things too, if it's deployed correctly. But the problem with money, it distorts a relationship in the sense that you suddenly, in, you're introducing a vested interest. Money is just the most powerful one. It can be whether someone finds a person attractive or they think it's good for their career chances or whatever. Um, right. And so once you introduce that West, that vested interest, yes, it might become predictable, but you never will know what is there when you've stripped it all. Mm-hmm. In other words, right. And so introducing money makes it much more complicated. And when you're dealing with a hostage negotiation, you really have to know whom you can rely on and whom not. Right. And I don't mean that in a, some dramatic way that just you have to know that at some point someone's going to make good irrespective of their direct vested interest. And you can't know that if money's involved, because when money's involved, uh, they will just turn around and go to the next highest bidder. Right. And so taking money out of the equation is sometimes makes life a little bit harder. But at the end, it makes it much easier because you really you see people more naked, essentially, mm-hmm. just by, by who they really are. Yeah, it's like the long, short road, right? right. Um, so you mentioned that. I think you use the word promise that you made these two girls a promise to tell the story. Um, it sounds like your career has <laughs> provided you with many similar adventures to this one. Um, what was there anything other than just this sort of that you felt this commitment to, to these girls who helped you anything other than that, or maybe, maybe that, and we can delve a little bit deeper into that. Um, that you said, I need to spend the time and the energy telling this particular story of all the stories that I could possibly um, be telling. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a very loaded question for me. So I should put it this way. I wouldn't have written this down had I not made the promise, given the promise to these two girls. Okay. Or now two young women. Uh, it resonated really deeply with me. I bumped into them because the younger of the two was being dragged by her hair by someone who had bought her services in a bar in Dubai, where I w- where I'd entered in order to look for this uh, drug drug lord. And when you said uh, you bumped into them. You meaning the first time you bump into them, or you already yeah, knew them? What, and yeah. What happens is I'm in Dubai. I'm looking for this drug lord who I am told is often in this one particular bar where young girls are being sold into slavery. And I go into that bar and he's not there. And on my way out of the bar and some Australian guy is dragging this young girl who, you know, she was my daughter's age. I didn't know that at the time, but just this young child by her hair who's screaming in agony across the floor. And I end up in a physical altercation with this guy and he ends up letting her go. And I don't see her anymore. I'm actually escorted out of that bar because because people claim that I started a fight. And so I'm waiting in a line to take a taxi back to the hotel because I hadn't connected with this drug lord. And her older sister walks up to me to thank me for helping her sister. That's how I met these two girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's towards the end of the story. And then the older sister is the one who lets me know when the drug lord is back in town. Wow. Had, and she took a huge personal risk. And when I met her after I found out what had happened to the missing person from the drug lord, and when I meet these two girls again to say goodbye to them and to thank them, and I ask her what I can do for her, uh, she then says, actually, the only thing you can do for me is tell our story. In other words, we don't want to stay, you know, we don't want to be just a statistic. You want to tell our story, tell our story. 
And that was the night I started to write this book. So that's the immediate answer to your question. Now, the the larger context is that you know I I take a lot of notes and I write diaries every day. I've been writing diaries since I was 12 years old. And actually, what started it was I read Anne Frank's diary and I started to address my diary to Anne the way she addressed her diary to Kitty. And I still do that wow. today. So that was when I started to write. I never thought of myself as a writer. It was really more of a diarist. And I'd written my last book prior to that called Nothing But a Circus. I wrote that during this particular experience in 2014. Every day in the evening, I would sit down and write a little bit, almost like therapy to calm my mind down. So for me, writing has a slightly different meaning. So writing this story, first of all, was a, this particular one was a, a promise to these two girls, now young women. Uh, and, uh, secondly, it was a way for me to process the whole thing. Mm. And then because it had happened over 20 days, the whole thing, actually, initially I, I, I was supposed to be over 18 days. And because 18 and high, I thought it was such a powerful symbol. And then in the end, it was 20 days. So I had to change that. But originally it was because it was 18 and that symbolism. Um, and, and so for me, it was a way to capture it. And because in Syria in particular, I hear so many people say, who cares? because the war has been going on for 11 years now and there's such unspeakable suffering still happening today, every day in Syria. And I'm so, I was getting so tired of hearing those words, who cares? That was another reason for me to write down this story, actually. Mm. But it was the only hostage situation of all those that I've been involved in that I ever decided to write down. Wow. So you talk about how it's, it was almost therapeutic for you to be writing through this. Let's, let's talk about the emotional toll uh, as you're dealing with these kind of shady individuals shady is probably a very light <laughs> light word for the, the 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 people and the places right and, and the fear and the courage i mean is it an exaggeration to even say that your safety was also put at risk or has been put at risk at times you know how how, how do you manage the emotional toll of, of of going through through this or maybe i should ask your family too <laughs> Well, I, you know, the, uh, the, I'll answer the first one. I think it's, uh, I'm trying to be very careful about the risk. So there are times I just don't take on a mandate or don't travel somewhere because I can't do it safely. I try not to travel with bodyguards or armed because if I have to do that, then I'm already presumably taking a risk I shouldn't be taking. Gotcha. Um, I think I'm pretty careful how I do this. Even the night in Beirut, I was comfortable doing it. It was awkward because I had to surrender my electronic devices and passports to meet this person. But what? But I knew that, but I knew I was under the protection of my friend who had sent me, who was powerful. And I knew that he had a lot of power over the militia leader whom I was meeting. So I it felt it was a calculated risk worth taking, whether I'm in Jordan or in Dubai or somewhere in, or in Syria. I'm clear about whom I'm meeting, where I'm meeting them. I would never, for example, meet one of these hostage takers in a place of their choosing alone i always meet them in a public place in mm. in square view i have backup plans escape plans i let contacts know in the region to come look for me i keep my phone on or i record something or i have an open mic so i i do have measures i take that are very specific some are technological some are otherwise uh to make sure that i'm safe so i feel like i do calculate this i've certainly done things in my life, including in the army in Israel that were far riskier than, mm. than this kind of work. So I don't feel like that's an excessive risk. Uh, my wife and I really do have an understanding that I don't share my work. She's a journalist and doesn't share her work oh. uh, on the other hand, but, but we know that what risks we deem to be acceptable or not. So I think that there is an understanding there uh, that, that, and we, we don't breach that. So there's a degree of trust, uh, trust and all that. So in terms of the personal risk, 
I, I feel like that's a, it, it may sound more dramatic for someone listening in than it actually is. And in the book, I tried to explain how I, how I hedge that risk. In terms of the emotional toll, that's a little, that's a little trickier. As I told you earlier, I, I really was done with Syria prior to the story. It does take a huge toll. Um, often these hostage situations don't have happy endings. So that alone is, tra- is traumatic. And in many cases, they last years. There is, uh, you know, there's a Western hostage in Syria who's been in Syria for almost nine years already oh ca- captured, you know, and every once in a while, you try to get proof of life. But these things are extremely draining. You're watching, you're interacting with the families. Even if you try to keep a distance, these things take a huge toll and you see their hopes go up when some politician makes them a promise and then their hopes collapse when the, when the promises turn out to be empty. Um, I try to tell families and governments to please stop talking publicly and stop doing tweets and press statements and, and, you know, bills on the floor of Congress and things like that. They only are counterproductive. They irritate the hostage takers and they also convince the hostage takers that they're someone of tremendous value. So the price goes up. Uh, And, you know, so you have all that you have to navigate where families want to have the feeling that they're doing something and you have to tell them the best thing they can do is do nothing so that the hostage takers don't get the sense that time is working in their favor, right? The moment a politician make some statement demanding the release of this or that hostage, the hostage takers just say, oh, you know, President so-and-so, Prime Minister so-and-so just spoke up. We'd be silly to release this person now. But every day that someone stays in captivity, the risk of them surviving goes down. So I beg the families and the governments, please stop making public statements. It's okay if you want to do, you know, bumper stickers or lawn signs or things like that. I understand that's nice where you live and it gives you a sense of solidarity, but don't do don't start sending ambassadors to that country to try and inquire for a number of reasons. One, it drives up the price. The other thing is, let's say you send a hostage negotiator, whether that's an ambassador or someone private. He meets with the hostage takers and he says to them, well, what, what do you want? OK, that's the one question you can never ask, because if they tell you what you want and you can't deliver it, that's like a death sentence to the hostage. That's like if you're a lawyer, the first rule you learn as a lawyer, never ask a question if you don't already know the answer, right? So because you can't be surprised on trial. You need to know what the witness is going to say. It's the same thing here. You don't go to a hostage taker and say, what would you like? You try to navigate very carefully, try to get information on the hostage taker, on their family. So rather than me going to someone and saying, what do you want in exchange? I say, hey, you know, I hear that your aunt, you know, has breast cancer and it's really hard to get her treatment in Syria. But there is a chemotherapy or radiation treatment in Cyprus we can arrange. You can go there by boat from Lebanon. Um, I think that would really get it done. Or, or you even play it and say, let me see if that would get it done. And suddenly you're talking about something entirely different rather than asking them what do they want. So that requires a little bit of experience in doing this kind of work. And when families get emotional, they get so desperate in the beginning, um, they they really lose. I wrote an article a few weeks ago because it was 20 year anniversary of the death of Danny Pearl, mm-hmm. who was decapitated in Pakistan in, in 2002. And uh, and it, it was I, the article that I wrote about is I'm basically begging families and governments to just shut up. Don't talk. Don't start making public statements. You know, a secretary of state or president giving a press conference condemning the evil hostage takers may feel good for a second, but after that, you've accomplished nothing. You've just irritated the hostage takers and driven up the price. So, you know, it requires a little bit of experience in navigating these things. Um, And, and, 
that's it's hard. So emotionally, it takes a huge toll because sometimes you have to tell parents things they don't want to hear and you have to ask them not to do something. It's a little bit like the original sin, right? You know, we're not told do this, do that. We're saying don't eat that fruit. It's, then our egos get in the way. Our, it's the hardest thing for us to do is to just sit back and let someone else, you know, pilot the ship. And, right. uh, and, and that's very, very hard for parents in those moments. Wow. So, so Daniel, you're done with Syria, but you're not done with this kind of work. <laughs> life isn't dull. Um, life isn't dull for you. Um, before I ask you about the current climate and if it, you know, what, how, what, how that is impacting what you're doing with the foundation, when you start, when you start this foundation with the prince, I mean, at, at at what point in your career? Because I presume that growing up, you did you want to follow in your father's footsteps in diplomacy? And like, how, give us a little bit of the background of how you, you know, of your career path and how you end up in this kind of work. Um, was it premeditated, sort of speak? No, I wish I could tell you that, you know, when I was 15, I thought out this great plan and all that. And, and I executed. It's not like that at all. I wish. It's really random. I was born in Israel. I Then we moved to Africa. My dad was Israeli ambassador in, in East Africa and Kenya in the 60s and moved back to Israel and then moved to Switzerland in 1970, where my mom's from, from the Italian part of Switzerland. I went there. Then I came to the States after high school, was a year in the States, then back to Switzerland, then to Israel Army. And at every stage, even the fact that I studied law was a little bit random. I studied it for different reasons, not because I wanted to be a lawyer. Then I did uh -huh. a PhD on I did a PhD on religious law, on the treatment of women in, with the get and the unilateral yeah. head of the Gershon, all that. That was my focus on my PhD, how a secular judge would have to look at that. Then I thought I'm going to be teaching that, but I came to the States for a postdoc. And then that brought me into a totally different kind of world and back to Africa on, on commercial work. So it was really random. But what had happened, and that's where the trajectory sort of connects again, is in the mid-90s, I started my own law firm in New York with a few friends and partners. And we had started, I got really interested in developing new economies initially in Africa, Central America and South America for a number of reasons. Eastern Europe, of course, which had ended the communist uh, hold in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And we started to do development in a different way by developing kind of a knowledge platform that instead of telling people what they should do, we would train young people on this platform and then walk away and let them implement it on their own okay. unless they needed help. So that was the very, very remote background. This is mid nineties. We got to do this in some countries first in Africa, like Angola that had suffered civil war. And we ended up mediating between the sides as a result. And this form of development was what started this foundation. So initially it wasn't even to nothing to do with hostages or war zones. It was really more, is there a better way to start rebuilding failed states rather mm -hmm. than the World Bank approach where we send experts, smart experts to tell them what to do? We developed this knowledge platform it was kind of a form of e-government very early in the 90s already. We trained their teams and then let them do it on their own, let mm -hmm. this evolve on their own. And that was the origin of this work. And that was the origin of my work in the Middle East. Then when the Arab Spring exploded, it led us because we were so networked in those regions it, that led to the requests of hostage negotiation. But, but all of this is a random career trajectory. And, and it's also random where I ended up living, you know, from Israel to Africa, to Israel, to Switzerland, to the U.S., to Switzerland, to Israel, to back to U.S., to Paris. None of that was some thought out great strategy. And there's nothing I could when, when sometimes I have interns or employees in the foundation who say, oh, you know, what would you do today? Or can you give me career advice? I'm the last person to give anyone <laughs> career advice because it's just a randomness. 
to that, you know, man plans, God laughs, I yes. suppose, like always. And um, maybe that's once you let go of that, that this illusion that we're in control, mm-hmm. it gets a little bit easier. And then things fall as they do. There have been lots of disappointments along the way and mistakes. My last book, Nothing But a Circus, really writes about more about my failures, right? About having sort of made the same mistakes again and again, trusting the crooked gatekeepers of those in power. Wow. And so, uh, you know, it's it's the idea that you can sort of set up some career path. Maybe others are more capable than I am and can do that. I certainly could not do that. I, I, partly because I did, it didn't turn out as I planned it, partly because I tended to get bored with something after a few years and moved on to the next thing. But uh, none of this was some great thought out strategy. And, and even the work today is going to be a little bit different than, than the work tomorrow. And, and, and what I've done in hostage situations five, six, seven, eight years ago is really different from the challenges I'm facing today. And when I'm dealing today more with governments who are holding people hostage rather than terrorist groups. And, and I mean, governments can be terrorist governments too, but I'm saying it's, it's really different dealing with a government that's hostile to us than dealing with a with a militia group that you can maybe negotiate more narrowly with. So m- my life has been, you know, se- a sequence of very random events, not some and any any listener or reader who thinks that I've thought this out carefully is, is really sorely mistaken. I wouldn't want to mislead them. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, I, I, you probably we just came out of the holiday of Purim. And I was just thinking of like how you say and it happens to all of us, right? It's just a random series sequence of events. And as I was listening to you, I'm like, thinking of Purim, right? It's a 10 year story. And everything seems to be just random things. But the whole message is like, nothing is random in life. Although it's, there's like this alibi for, <laughs> for the almighty who's like orchestrating um, all of it. It's it's really so fascinating. I and love the, the Purim, Purim actually has another lesson in there which i'm often reminded of in dealing with this kind of evil which is that you know just like the obviously the evil character in purim is someone who's a really strange mediocre person he was a failed baker uh, in his life no one took him seriously and then he has the potential to inflict such evil just like in the middle of the last century this failed painter you know who inflicts evil on the jews and you see this again and again, these really almost laughable characters yeah. who are capable of inflicting such tremendous harm and, and doing such evil. And so the, the, the lesson, you know, and this is a lesson I'm never done learning. I'll learn it again and again and again, I suppose. Maybe I'm just a slow learner, but it's that, that people, you, we really tend to misjudge people because we think we can project future behavior. Mm. And in fact, as human beings, we're terrible predictors. If, you know, if, if, uh, if the creator wanted to give us a world that we could predict, he would have done it a little bit different. It's really not given in our hands. Right. And so that's in the skies and the skies belong to someone else. And so I, I think that this awareness of not being able to predict and anticipate and, and understand exponential changes too that happen in our lives too, whether it's, individual relationships whether it's a pandemic which our brains simply are not wired to understand exponential change or growth uh is is very very humbling so for me these experiences and 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 often people come and ask for advice on on hostage or other adverse situations 
everyone's different and every situation's different. And, and I'm not sure the more I do this, the less I feel I'm really equipped to dispense that kind of advice. Yes, I hear you. So, so, so David, what now with the found, with the, your work that you do with the foundation and the war going on, um, are you guys, are you in the foundation already seeing that there's going to be some sort of more work for you to do in Eastern Europe in terms of, I, I don't really know. Is there? Eastern Europe because of Ukraine, you're asking? Yes. Because there's not Ukraine. Um, the work of the foundation there is a little different. So the, the, you know, most of what the foundation works is obviously this kind of development work with young people and then hostage situations, but most of the mediation and negotiation work of the foundation is what we call track three. So track one is the very formal state to state negotiations. Track two is diplomats and working meetings. Track three is completely behind the scenes with plausible deniability. Uh, and so, for example, in the Ukraine, the foundation has gotten involved in military to military negotiations to avoid nuclear escalations on the war. So that's uh, we don't get in. We're, for example, not involved in refugee absorptions. There are other NGOs and huge foundations and civil groups that have done wonderful work in in Europe and elsewhere in the world in absorbing these huge streams of Ukrainian refugees. The Jewish community in Ukraine is completely shattered. Our friends in Vienna who have absorbed thousands and thousands of of Refugee in Hungary, the same way in Budapest and in Poland. So th- th- that's not really the mission statement of the foundation, but we are involved in some of the military to military de-escalation negotiations in the Ukraine too. So yeah, unfortunately, oh. you know, as long as there are humans on this planet, there will be conflict on this planet too. So I don't think the foundation is going to be running out of work anytime soon. Wow. Wow. Daniel, this has been such a pleasure. The book is, we want everybody to grab it. Proof of life, 20 days on the hunt for a missing person in the middle east i so appreciate this conversation so insightful and i'm looking forward to what's next is there another book in the works perhaps we'll have to see uh <laughs> there's a film in the works so we're working on a screenplay right now it's wow. uh, it's been optioned for film so we're working on a multi-season series and the first season is the book and depending on that i might write a prequel that's just the life of the two girls but i would write it with the older of the two together wow so that's fascinating we'll, we'll, to see. yeah we're looking for forward to that and continued success in this wonderful work. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Daniel Levin for stopping by. You can find him at daniellevinauthor.com. His book again is Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. You can get on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. And as he mentioned in the interview, his first book is Nothing But a Circus, Misadventures Among the Powerful. And I'll tell you, I most certainly plan on reading both. Um, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I would love to hear what you thought. It was a little bit of a detour from our usual conversation, but I thought it was a really, really powerful and impactful conversation. And I so appreciate Daniel for sharing with us. And I can't wait to dive into those books. If you've read the books, let me know. I'd love to know. Thanks again for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. You could also share your comments on Instagram and and tag me and I will reshare. Be sure to send in those questions for the Friday Ask Yael episodes. You can send them via email, yael at yaeltrush.com or DM on Instagram at yaeltrush. Have a great week and remember, your Jewish money matters. Oh,